Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child abuse, neglect, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On September 18, 1999, 35-year-old Dennis Mingo stood in the yard of his old house outside Attleboro, Massachusetts, knocking at the door. He was trying one last time to convince his 34-year-old estranged wife, Michelle, to take their five children and leave with him. But Michelle was especially tied to the separatist religious group Dennis had left behind, as she was the daughter of Roland Robidoux, the founder and leader. After hours of pleading, Dennis gave up and left. That night, the whole sect packed up to flee under the cover of darkness. They headed to Maine, their prophesied promised land. They gassed up the cars, packed provisions and camping equipment, and even loaded up a little red trailer. But the trailer didn't contain camping equipment or food. It was towing two tiny coffins, each of which had the dead body of a baby inside. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we learned about Roland and Jacques Robidoux and the Attleboro sect. They were a small and insular cult in Massachusetts that rejected mainstream society and medical care and believed its members received direct messages from God. The story left off as the baby son of one of the church elders starved to death while the community prayed over him. Today, we'll see how the repercussions of the death of Samuel Robidoux and another baby born to the Attleboro sect led to the cult's downfall. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Dennis Mingo had married into the Attleboro sect when he wed Michelle, the daughter of Roland Robidoux. But in November of 1998, he separated from the group, leaving Michelle and their five children behind five months before the horrific death of Samuel. In fact, Dennis was unaware that Samuel had passed. The group kept Samuel's death hidden, even as Dennis periodically returned to the cult's enclave to check in on his family. While Dennis wasn't forbidden to visit, the other cult members ignored his presence, and his children weren't supposed to interact with him. Despite how they would shun him, Dennis had to try to get Michelle to leave the insular group and rejoin him as a family. He didn't know what else to do. He didn't want to resort to any sort of force or violence to extricate her, as it'd probably backfire. And he didn't think calling the authorities was warranted. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. David V. Barrett has written on this topic in his book, The New Believers, Sects, Cults, and Alternative Religions. He posits that any action stronger than banging on the door and pleading is likely to result in the opposite of what is hoped for. If a cult member is made to leave against their will, it will reinforce the divisiveness they already feel against their family and against society. This will only amplify their desire to return to the cult, which they feel is their new family. 
So despite the anguish and frustration Dennis was going through, he knew not to cross the line and force Michelle to leave with him. Dennis was persistent, though, and returned to visit his family more than once over the next several months. During his visits, he observed the progressing pregnancy of another of Roland's daughters, 31-year-old Rebecca Corneau. Dennis noticed Rebecca's belly getting larger each time he was there and knew that her due date must be approaching. In August of 1999, the happy occasion came for Rebecca and her 32-year-old husband, David. They hoped that the baby's arrival would lift spirits after Samuel's death just four months earlier. If the baby was a boy, they planned to name him Jeremiah. Yet for all their excitement and planning, they encountered serious problems. Rebecca and the rest of the community felt they didn't need modern medicine as the Lord would provide. The tenets of the cult dictated that whatever happened, good or bad, was God's will and should be trusted. The best help her community could provide was moral support and prayer. Their prayers helped Rebecca feel strong while she was in labor, but Rebecca's delivery was difficult and there was no midwife or doctor present. Tragically, there were complications during the birth of Jeremiah Corneau, and he allegedly suffocated to death. It's possible that had medical help been on hand, his life could have been saved. Rebecca and David were devastated at the disappointment and loss, and turned to their community for support. Rebecca did her best to quiet her sorrow and prayed for an understanding of God's plan. While racked with grief, David held Rebecca and assured her that Jeremiah must have been taken for a reason. Afterwards, most of the cult avoided mentioning Jeremiah at all. Dennis noticed on one of his trips back to see his family that Rebecca no longer looked as though she was with child. But weirdly, there wasn't any sign of a new baby, and no one was talking. In September of 1999, Dennis saw his chance to investigate what had happened to Rebecca's child. The next time Dennis stopped by to try to spend some time with his children, the sect happened to be having a yard sale. As people were milling around, checking out the wares, Dennis slipped into the Corneau house. He wasn't sure what he was looking for, but he had his eyes open for any sign of Rebecca having given birth. He hoped to find either a safe, happy baby or some evidence of the infant's demise. As grim as the thought was, Dennis even checked inside a freezer in the basement, just in case. Yet for all his searching, Dennis didn't find any sign of the baby or its potential death. Instead, he discovered some journals, stuck in between two Bibles, that he hoped might reveal what happened. When Dennis got home, he read through the diaries, and he was shocked and disgusted by what he found inside their pages. Inside, he found a detailed, gruesome account of the long, drawn-out starvation death of Samuel, the infant son of Jacques and Karen Robidoux. Whoever had written the account spared no details, and Dennis's stomach dropped as he learned what had happened. The tale also revealed how the experience made the witnesses question that they were doing the right thing, that this could really be God's will. 
Dennis bristled as he read that when 26-year-old Jacques was confronted with their doubt, he instructed them not to focus on the baby or his suffering. He instead guided them to think of spiritual things, remember their faith, and to pray. This is actually one of the traits that the Attleboro sect displays that qualifies them as a cult rather than an alternative religion. In an article called The Cult Phenomenon, Fad or Fact, in the NYU Review of Law and Social Change, Marsha R. Rudin, the founding director of the International Cult Education Program, discussed how doubt was dealt with in a cult. She said, if the follower shows signs of doubting the cult, he is made to feel that the fault lies within himself, not with the cult's ideas, and to feel intensely guilty about these doubts. In fact, Rudin also states that over time, members of a cult may actually lose their ability to think for themselves and become incapable of doubting the leader. Within a cult, the rules are not allowed to be questioned, and an elder or leader is seen as the absolute authority. Dennis had been fortunate enough to recognize the mental coercion present within the Attleboro sect and get out. But the journals he discovered were a brutal reminder of the milieu his wife and children still existed within. And his fear for his family is what compelled Dennis to continue to turn the diary's pages. He felt sick as he read that the group told 24-year-old Karen that the heart-rending sight of her starving and crying child was a test from Satan. Instead of helping Samuel, the other cult members encouraged Karen to endure and persevere through her son's tormented screams. The passages also admonished Karen for her woe-is-me attitude during Samuel's torturous demise. Perhaps most chilling, the recorded saga of Samuel's death finished up by saying, God counts it as a gain to remove a loved one in order to get the results needed for his purposes. The last entry from March 17, 1999, was written as if from the point of view of God addressing Karen, and it said, Just as it pleased me for you to grow your hair long, to stop drinking coffee, and to pray for another child, it would please me if you took Samuel and left him in the palm of my hand. Outraged and disgusted by what he read, Dennis feared for his five children and Michelle, who were still living in the community. After what he'd learned about the people he used to live with, it took him a few days to quiet his thoughts and decide what to do. He knew he had to return to the Attleboro sect, but this time Dennis was armed with the knowledge of what had happened to Samuel. In early September 1999, Dennis returned to the cult's enclave and told Michelle what he discovered. He pleaded with her for an hour to leave with him and take their children to safety. But Michelle wouldn't budge. Frustrated and in tears, Dennis warned her that he would let her think about it and that he'd try once more, but if she wouldn't leave with him next time he asked, he would share what he knew with the police. He really didn't want his family involved in any scandal or law enforcement action that took place. He hoped that Michelle would join him in leaving the cult before he took that measure. As he'd promised, Dennis went to see Michelle a week later, on September 18, 1999. He had anticipated resistance from Michelle, but he was surprised that she wouldn't even come to the door. He knocked some more, but nobody let him in. Frustrated and despondent, Dennis gave up and left, knowing that he'd have to get the police involved. 
Unbeknownst to Dennis, after he left the compound, the cult members quietly fled under the cover of night. Their destination was Maine, the same place they'd tried to reach just over a year before on their blighted road trip without supplies. Despite how unlucky that trip had been, the group members still had faith that Maine represented the Holy Land for them and that the land itself held special powers. They reportedly believed that if they were to bury the long-dead corpse of a baby, that the spiritual power they'd find in Maine would resurrect the deceased child. Next, we'll learn what happened when the police investigated the Attleboro sect and the disappearance of the two babies. Hi, listeners. If you haven't had a chance to check out the podcast, Conspiracy Theories, there's no better time to dig into this mysterious Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, hosts Molly and Carter take a curious look at some of the most questionable and questioned happenings in history. Some of my favorite episodes include their gripping four-part special on the Oklahoma City bombing, the cryptic death of Edgar Allan Poe, and the alleged secrets and schemes of the Bush family. But trust me, there are so many more fascinating episodes of Conspiracy Theories available for you to start binging. You won't be disappointed. From the craziest controversies to possible cover-ups, they leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Because the truth is, sometimes there's more to a story than just the truth. Follow Conspiracy Theories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In September 1999, 35-year-old Dennis Mingo discovered incriminating journals containing information about Samuel's death that he knew he had to take to the authorities. While that was happening, the cult retreated to Maine to bury the bodies of the two infants they'd lost, Samuel and Jeremiah. Shockingly, the cult members kept the tiny dead bodies of both Samuel, who died five months before, and Jeremiah, who passed one month before. They did what they could to preserve their corpses and placed them in baby-sized plywood coffins that had been secreted away in the basement of the Corneau home. Dennis had no idea he'd been so close to the remains of the boys when he was searching the basement for Jeremiah. When the convoy arrived with their sad cargo at Baxter State Park in north-central Maine, they set up camp at the Troutbrook Farm campground, they were going to spend a few weeks there to celebrate their autumn harvest festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. The group ate and sang and celebrated, holding hands and dancing in a circle. They created quite a spectacle, and other tourists visiting the park reportedly photographed and filmed them. When the time was right, Samuel's father Jacques and Jeremiah's father David, along with other men of the sect, carefully retrieved the baby's coffins packed up shovels, and quietly hiked away from the festivity. They walked a path called the Freeze-Out Trail, going a few miles until they reached the northwest end of Grand Lake Matagammon. Once they crested a hill, they found the spot that finally seemed right. The spot seemed cathedral-like to them, with the majestic view of the steep granite knife edge of Mount Katahdin. The men stopped, hefted their shovels off their shoulders, and took in the sound of the Grand Pitch Waterfall. Determined to complete their grim mission, they dug two small graves about three feet down. They buried both boys in the soil of what they considered to be their holy land. 
The men dragged over two fallen trees and used them to construct the shape of a cross on the ground. They remained at the gravesite that night and prayed for the boy's resurrection. The next morning, the men woke early and hiked back to rejoin their families at the campground. With this important task completed and their celebrations over, the sect returned to Massachusetts. But Dennis had reported what he'd learned about Samuel's death to the authorities, so life would never be the same for the Attleboro sect. On November 10, 1999, police showed up at the group's home on Knight Avenue in Attleboro. They announced they were doing a well-being check on the alleged missing child, Samuel Robidoux. Not only was no one able to produce Samuel, but during the investigation, David Corneau mentioned Jeremiah as having been stillborn. So now the police realized they had two missing infants. A flurry of activity began at the cult's enclave. Investigators used shovels and backhoes to dig up the backyard, looking for small corpses. Nothing was discovered and no criminal charges were filed, but 13 children, including the Mingo and Corno kids, were removed from the compound by the Department of Social Services. Police interrogated Jacques about Samuel, but Jacques remained tight-lipped. Jacques seemed to feel that society and law enforcement's rules didn't apply to him. He knew that he answered only to God. He wouldn't offer any help to the investigation into Samuel's disappearance, and also declined to plead the fifth, since he didn't want to participate in the legal system. With no other choice, police imprisoned him. Karen was also arrested and jailed for the same reasons. But after a week behind bars, she invoked her Fifth Amendment right and was released. Since his five children were among those removed from the compound, Dennis was awarded custody. He was so relieved to finally know they were safe with him and not living with the Attleboro sect. But their re-entry into the world wasn't easy. Since they'd been taught within the cult to shun their father, the kids wouldn't talk to him or even look at him. Dennis was patient and understood that they had been indoctrinated by the group. Over time, they relaxed and began interacting with him again. They eventually started acting like regular kids and not cult members. Yet one cult belief stuck with them. The children couldn't shake the chilling belief that baby Samuel, who had been buried in the Maine woods, was going to come back to life. Meanwhile, the investigation continued to search for Samuel and Jeremiah. On November 19th, police returned to the group's home and confiscated anything they thought might provide a clue. Authorities also spoke with the children who had been removed from the sect, and some shared details that they remembered with the police investigators. Chillingly, one child said that Jeremiah had been born without a breath. Dennis's nine-year-old daughter reportedly stated that she remembered the grown-ups in the sect standing around Samuel's dead body, crying. The children continued to share the bombshell memory, saying that the corpses had been transported to Maine while the sect took a camping trip in September 1999. They also recollected Jacques, David, and other sect adults disappearing into the woods with shovels. Prosecutor Walter Shea said, The children told us the truth, which is more than their parents did. The children, by virtue of the fact that they were children, had not yet been indoctrinated with the beliefs of the adults in the sect. They were still innocent. They were open to the police and trusting of them. 
the authorities continued to interrogate key sect members and narrowed down their search for the baby's bodies, which they came to believe were buried somewhere in Baxter State Park in Maine. If it was too late to intervene and save these children, then finding their remains became paramount to the investigators. If they could build a case against the cult, they could help to ensure the safety of other children. After days of local searching, investigators traveled to Baxter State Park, bringing along search dogs. One of Dennis's children actually went along to the camping site and pointed out landmarks he remembered to assist in the search. But unfortunately, Baxter State Park was large, encompassing 200,000 acres of land. Pinpointing an area to look for two tiny bodies was a challenge. So far, Jacques, Karen, and Michelle, although having been questioned repeatedly, remained silent. David Corneau, however, finally revealed that Jesus had told him to bury his son Jeremiah's body and that he'd done so. He stopped short of revealing the location, however. Similarly, Karen admitted under questioning that her son had passed away, but wouldn't volunteer any other information. 26-year-old Jacques, church elder of the Attleboro sect, wouldn't say anything about what happened to Samuel. In one court appearance, Jacques stayed mum, still insisting that the court and laws of the United States had no jurisdiction over himself or his church. He apparently claimed that because Samuel had not been issued a social security number, he was a member of a sovereign nation. Therefore, he could not be the subject of an investigation. Bristol County Assistant DA Gerald Fitzgerald was incredibly frustrated with the stubborn refusal of the cult's members to cooperate. He said, I respect anyone's religion, but I cannot imagine how it is not in the interest of society in general to know if a child is alive or dead and what happened. By April of 2000, Jacques had been in jail for half a year. He'd reportedly been in front of a judge six times and still wasn't talking. He'd also refused a court-appointed lawyer and was acting as his own attorney. Despite the ongoing scandals and court appearances, the Atterborough sect had held together what they could. Rebecca Corneau's parents were still members, and the group still had 60-year-old Roland as their leader, despite the trouble his son had gotten into. Even after failed prophecies, tragic deaths, arrests, and questioning, they still clung to each other and their beliefs. In some cases, reasons why members refuse to leave a cult even in the face of obvious trouble are similar to factors involved in abusive relationships and domestic violence. Psychiatrist Dr. Mark Banchik has explored that connection. He explains how a cult can rob a devotee of their basic belief in themselves and the courage to attempt to get out. They also might worry that they wouldn't be able to survive outside of the protection of the group. Banchik wrote that cult members can feel trapped in the same way that victims of domestic abuse can. They might fear that something horrible will happen to them if they were to leave. In the case of the Attleboro sect, it's possible that Roland represented the same type of authority as a partner in an abusive, intimate relationship. His now smaller congregation felt trapped and unable to extricate themselves. But interrogations of sect members continued. And by May 3, 2000, Michelle, Roland, David, and other congregants were officially charged with contempt and imprisoned. In September 2000, with the cult members very much in the public eye, it became apparent that 32-year-old Rebecca was visibly pregnant. 
Because of her history with the group and her baby Jeremiah's death, authorities were concerned. Since Rebecca was still a practicing member of the Attleboro sect, it's possible the same lack of medical care could put her new baby in danger. Rebecca refused to submit to a medical exam, so a Massachusetts judge ruled that she would have to reside in a state hospital until her baby was born to give the child the best possible chance of survival. Rebecca gave birth to a baby girl on October 16th, who was immediately put in the custody of the state. Later that month, Bob Pardon visited 33-year-old David Corneau, Rebecca's husband, in jail. Pardon was the head of the New England Institute of Religious Research and had personally worked with over 30 cults. Pardon also ran Meadow Haven, a safe refuge for people who have defected from cults to help them transition into their post-cult lives. Despite the other imprisoned cult members still refusing to cooperate in the investigation, Pardon was able to get David to crack. All it took were photographs of three of his children who had been placed with foster parents. David studied the photographs and his emotions welled up. He missed them so much and he wasn't sure he would get to see them again. Thinking of his kids also brought to mind Samuel and Jeremiah. David leaned on the wall of the jail with the photographs in his hands and just sobbed. The visceral reminders of his children and what he'd been party to and had lost was what it took to shake him back to reality. That's when David decided to assist the investigation. He opened up and finally told the authorities what they were desperate to know, where baby Samuel and baby Jeremiah were buried up in Maine. Coming up, the Cornos find themselves in more legal trouble after another baby disappears. Now, back to the story. In October 2000, 33-year-old David Corneau was the first and only member of the Atterborough sect who spoke to police about the deaths of Samuel and Jeremiah. Using a compass and watching for familiar landmarks, David led police to the site in Baxter State Park where the boys' bodies were buried. In exchange for this crucial information and a promise to testify, he and Rebecca were given immunity from the prosecution. David also hoped that his cooperation would lead to regaining custody of his children. In November 2000, Jacques, Karen, and Michelle were indicted in front of a grand jury. They all pled innocent to all charges. To make matters worse, the Cornos would see themselves in trouble with the law over a pregnancy again. In late 2001, Rebecca appeared to be very obviously with child. A few months later, investigators from the Department of Social Services visited various sect houses to try to confirm the birth, but were unsuccessful. In February 2002, Rebecca and David were arrested and put in jail for failing to produce the child to the court. Initially, they actually even denied that Rebecca had been pregnant at all. But they finally dropped that ruse and reported that Rebecca had had a miscarriage, but they had no way to prove their story to authorities. The judge ordered them to either produce the child or to show investigators where they'd buried the remains of the baby they claimed they'd lost. Authorities suspected that once again, a baby could have been born alive but perished without access to proper medical care. J.W. Carney, Rebecca's lawyer, lamented what she was being put through, having to somehow prove to the courts that she'd had a miscarriage. Carney said, 
The judge has forced the Corneau family to come forward and reveal the most private information. It is cruel and inhumane to ask people to do that. Their deadline came and went, and the Corneaux offered no proof of the miscarriage they said Rebecca had experienced. They were both ordered to stay in jail until June of 2002, after which they were released. That same month, a much bigger court date for the Atterborough sect occurred. On June 5th, 2002, 29-year-old Jacques stood trial for the first-degree murder of his son Samuel. In his defense, his lawyer, Francis O'Boy, stated that there was no evidence that Samuel had actually died from starvation. O'Boy posited that the baby's death might not have been from starvation at all, but from a condition such as scurvy or rickets, which are both caused by vitamin deficiencies. But the prosecution countered, saying that he believed the boy was starved to death and that both his parents were aware it was happening. The chief medical examiner who actually performed the autopsy on Samuel's body, Dr. Margaret Greenwald, testified at Jacques' trial. According to Dr. Greenwald, Samuel likely did have scurvy and other diseases, but they were directly caused by severe malnutrition due to starvation. Another medical expert, Dr. Marcella Sorg, a forensic anthropologist, examined Samuel's bones. She offered what might have been the most heart-rending piece of testimony about Samuel. Dr. Sorg testified that his bones had become porous from malnutrition and that Samuel's skeleton had shrunk so much that in order to examine his remains, they used an X-ray scanner that is usually used to X-ray mice. During the trial, the prosecution revealed that the incriminating journals discovered by Dennis had actually been written by Jacques himself. Perhaps the most damning line in Jacques' journal was when he wrote that Karen had claimed she'd been given signs from God that she could go back to feeding their son solid food. But Jacques wouldn't allow it, insisting that Karen withhold the food to prove her full faith in the Lord. In addition to the journal evidence, a letter that Jacques sent to a friend was introduced at trial. In the missive, Jacques wrote, I am sitting here watching Karen attempt to nurse. It is so sad. It is amazing to me that only two and a half weeks ago, Samuel was taking first steps, and now he can barely roll over. We pray and hope that God sees fit to allow Karen's milk to come back. The prosecution told the courtroom, day after day, week after week, in the face of the horrific crying, in the face of the radical weight loss, Jacques Robidoux and his wife Karen continued to do what they knew was killing their son. During the nine days of court proceedings about his son's demise, including when the medical experts testified about his condition and death, Jacques reportedly displayed no emotion at all. But he did concede that his son's health was adversely affected after he was put through the dietary restrictions and that he wasn't getting enough nourishment. Despite insisting that any harm to Samuel was due to mistakes and misunderstandings, he did ultimately take responsibility, stating in court, the buck stops here. Jacques was found guilty of first-degree murder by reason of extreme atrocity and cruelty and sentenced to life in prison. In 2004, 28-year-old Karen was also tried in Samuel's case for second-degree murder. Her defense argued that she'd been brainwashed by the Attleboro sect. During her trial, which lasted a little over a week, 
some other disturbing information about the sex beliefs came out. When 40-year-old Dennis took the stand, he recounted that corporal punishment was encouraged within the group and members would wear wooden paddles like necklaces. He shared with the court that his greatest shame was disciplining his children, not because he thought they needed it due to their behavior, but to gain Roland's favor. Karen's defense lawyer, Joseph Krauske, argued in court that she was just as much of a victim of Jacques and the Adelboro sect as her son had been. He said that Karen had wanted to help Samuel, but was prevented from doing so due to being under the control, intimidation, and abuse of the cult. A moving moment happened in the courtroom when a videotape of Samuel was shown as evidence. Karen was so devastated to see him again happy, healthy, and alive that she broke down sobbing. Court proceedings had to be halted until she was able to regain her composure. Karen said that she feared for anyone, especially any child, who was still under the spell of the cult. She absolutely thought that more deaths of children were possible, and that since the remaining members weren't repentant, the dangerous cycle would continue. She also very much blamed her husband for the tragedy. Karen claimed that she wouldn't have been able to flee for safety, as Jacques would have stopped her. She stated, I do hold Jacques responsible. He had control. He didn't put his family before the group. Ultimately, in February 2004, 28-year-old Karen was found not guilty of murder. She was, however, convicted of assault. She was set free on time served as she'd already spent two and a half years in jail. After her release, she spent time in Bob Pardon's Meadow Haven facility for former cult members. Michelle was also tried. She pleaded guilty on two counts of accessory before the fact, for assault and battery on a child due to her role in delivering the dreadful prophecy. She was sentenced to concurrent two-and-a-half-year terms on each count. She was released based on time served and then returned to the fold of the Attleboro sect. The Cornos were never charged with any wrongdoing in Jeremiah's death, as there was never any proof found that that baby could have been saved with medical care. Roland was never charged with any crime. He never budged from his belief that he wasn't guilty of anything. The only factor he blamed Samuel's death on was Karen's lack of faith. He believed that the purpose of the baby's death was to teach Karen humility. After the controversy, publicity, and trials, the Atterborough sect lived on. A dozen or so members clung to their beliefs and still worshipped under their leader, Roland. After everything their daughter Karen had been through, her parents appeared to have remained. Noticeably absent, though, were children. All of the kids removed from the sect remained with their foster families. In May of 2006, Roland was found unresponsive in the sect home in Atterborough. Police stated that while his death seemed to be from natural causes, they believed that it was linked to Roland not availing himself of medical care. Roland Robidoux, the man who'd started it all, had passed away at 65 years old. In 2019, World Magazine met with Jacques Robidoux in Old Colony Correctional Center in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, 19 years into his sentence. He was 46 years old, and it was the first interview he had granted since his sentencing. He said for his first year behind bars, he still held onto his religious beliefs, but he began to snap out of it when he was delivered divorce papers. 
The grim reality of Karen wanting to leave him drove home the fact that he had actually starved his own son to death. For years, he struggled, questioning God and his family. But then he was transferred to a different facility, which happened to be near where Bob Pardon and his wife Judy lived. The Pardons started to pay him visits in prison. Due to their company and counsel, Jacques started to feel as if he were beginning to heal. He also started opening up to other prisoners, learning about other cultures and backgrounds, and reading books and magazines. All of those actions would have been prohibited within the confines of the Atterborough sect. Jacques began to feel freer behind bars than he ever had before. He became open to different interpretations of Christianity. In somewhat eerie shades of his father's experience, Jacques even found himself leading a Bible study group in the prison. Part of why he granted the interview was to give others hope. He even had recommendations for anyone who might be concerned that they were being sucked in to joining a cult. He advised to be wary of a group that wants to isolate you and always be analytical and questioning. Regarding the turnaround he had in prison, Jacques had this to say, the heart is a complex thing. Thank goodness we have a creator who knows its inner workings better than we do ourselves. Some walls come down in a day, while others take years. The payoff is a true healing, where hurt and fear and doubt and anger no longer hold sway. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Scott Stronick. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Christine Colby. With writing assistance by Giles Hovseth. Fact-checking by Anya Bayerly. And research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 